as Gary said, I, I love the scriptures, and uh, over, over a lot of years, I've spent a lot of time reading this book. This particular one looks like it's been read a few times, and it has. And uh, one of the reasons I love the scriptures so much is that uh, what I find in there um, are just wonderful things from God, some really, really honest stuff that that meets, you, meets me where I am and uh, speaks to me about uh, what God thinks about uh, things that are happening in my life because I see these people. I love doing character studies in the Scriptures. It's just, it is just so... Um, see, it's not often I'm short of words. It's just a really great thing to study the people who, who walk the pages of this book and to, uh, and to discover their lives and to see what they went through and see what God said to them and to see how they responded to what God was doing in their lives. And uh, there's just so much we can learn from these people. Some of them were idiots. Some of them were, were rogues. Some of them were amazing godly people. Some of them were amazing godly people who fell flat on their faces sometimes. You know, and we can just learn so much from from these people. And one of these people, and you can spend so much time um, studying the character of, of this particular person. This person I'm referring to is, is David, King David. And you can spend so much time because there's so much in there about him. He's such a such a huge, huge figure across the pages of the Old Testament, and he also gets a Guernsey quite a few times in the New Testament as well. And uh, you can spend so much time studying his story. And there's one period in David's life which uh, I, I came across a, a few weeks ago and it's been, it's been stewing um, over those few weeks. And uh, if you read in 1 Samuel, from about chapter 27 onwards, um, David is, is running away from King Saul. And he finishes up in, in Philistia, in, among the Philistines. And uh, you probably know they were, they were pretty serious enemies of Israel at this time. And, and David's fled across the border into, into their territory. And he's living with his, his men. Um, and uh, it's just interesting how they came together. But they all head off with their families. They head over the border into Philistia and, and they're, uh, they're hiding, hopefully out of the reach of King Saul, who's, who's bent on killing David. And uh, he lives there um, among the Philistines for a while and, and gains the trust of one of the, the Philistine leaders um, who becomes convinced that David is uh, really a, a great guy and has, you know, despite his history in, in fighting against the Philistines, is, you know, is not a danger and uh, it welcomes him into that area. But there came a moment there, as you, you read on and you get to chapter 29, in 1 Samuel, where the Philistines are off to war with Israel. Now, this particular point in time, David's thinking, well, okay, if, I'm, if I've run away from Israel and, and I've convinced this bloke I'm, I'm, I'm a good guy for, as far as the Philistines are concerned, I'd better pack up my men and march off with the Philistine army, hadn't I? Um, it's going to look a bit inconsistent if I don't. And... Oh, you know how politics goes. And, uh, and David here really is caught in a, 
a bit of political, a bit of a political trap here. He's been setting himself up. He's, I'm running away from the king of Israel. I'm, I've forsaken that. I'm, I'm, I'm hiding here in, in among the Philistines, and I, I need now, now that the Philistines are off to, to battle, I need to show that I support them and I, I'm, that I haven't been lying all this time um, by p- getting, getting my men together and marching off with them, even though they're, they're preparing to fight against Israel. And so off he goes. Well, of course, he, all the Philistines meet together and they're, they're mustering and the army's coming together and uh, the other Philistine leaders go, whoa, hang on, what, what, what's he doing here? This guy, isn't this the guy they, they sing, you know, Saul's killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands? You know, we, we don't want this guy here. And, you know, they have a few harsh words to the, the Philistine leader who's brought David along. And he says, no, look, this guy, uh, we, we don't want him. We don't want him here. We don't want him fighting with us because it might get to the, you know, a critical moment in the heat of the battle. And David is going to go, okay, now's the, the good moment to get favor back in Israel. And he might turn his men against us and we don't want to take that risk send this guy away and so David and his men are sent away and they they pack up start marching back uh, to where they've been staying a town called Ziklag which is where they were with their their wives and children and all their possessions they this is a town that had been given to, to David and his men to live in and it was oh, two or three days march I think um, long walk Back to back home, and so they'd been away for about a week, I guess. And uh, you read in chapter thirty what happened. We begin there. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now, the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag, and they had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and they'd taken captive the women and all all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but they carried them off as they went on their way. And so these people were now apparently destined to a life of, of slavery, okay, which could be very unpleasant. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength to weep. David's two wives had been captured Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. And (laughs) I've sort of tried to imagine where David was at that point. I mean, I've never had my, my wife and children carried off as slaves. I've I've never returned home to find my house burned down. Um, so I haven't quite been where David's been there. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've, been in some, I've been in some pretty hairy places. And uh, there have been some times where I've asked, God, what, <coughs> what are you doing? What, what, why did you allow this? Uh, surely this is not in your, your good and perfect plan. What's going on here? And uh, as I imagine David was feeling here. But worse than that, you see, David had taken his men with him. And really this is, you know, this is David's political tangle here, right? David's created this little 
problem for himself in one sense. He's running away from Saul. He, that, that's Saul. That's not David's fault. Okay, he, David was has already been anointed the next king of Israel, and and Saul's reacting very very badly to that. That's not David's fault. But in particular, the decisions that David has made about getting chummy with the Philistines has led him into this little conflict of interests. Okay where he's trying to be friendly with the Philistines, but the Philistines are now at war with Israel. So he had to, you know, put his money where his mouth was, right, and march off to war with the Philistines, but the Philistines didn't want him. And this whole situation, this political tangle that David's got himself in into has created this situation where they've left Ziklag, they've left their, their wives and their children behind, they've left all their possessions behind, essentially undefended, by anybody trained or able to defend them. And these Amalekites have come through and taken advantage of that. And this is because David has got himself into a political tangle. And now his men are very well aware of that. Yeah? And they're, they're talking of stoning David now. Why are they talking of stoning David? Because this is David's political tangle that they've paid for with the loss of their homes and their families. And they're a little bit ticked, to say the least. And they're going, what on earth did we end up following this guy for? You know? Look where it's got us, really. This is not our, this is not our political tangle. This is his political tangle. And we're paying for it with the, with the lives of our, our families and all the possessions that we've, we've worked for over the years. So David being the kind of guy he was, as you know, you read read through his life you you know that David was not unaware of this and and he felt he felt this you know David was the kind of leader where he knew if he'd made a decision and that messed up someone else's life he felt bad about it and, and yeah, there's other I could give you several other examples okay where he's made a decision and his people have suffered for it and he's said look these people are not at fault this is this is my decision, yeah, and he's owned up to it. And the, the one thing that we find that separated David, the man after God's own heart, he's called in the Scriptures, that separated him from his predecessor Saul was that David was willing to own up to his decisions and repent when he made a wrong one. Yeah? Yeah, when Saul was confronted by the prophet Samuel for his mistakes, he, he first of all tried denying the whole situation. No, no, it's, it's not the case. But that didn't work. It's a bit hard to lie to a prophet, you know. Um, he, started to, he started to bring out the handballs, you know, pass the buck a bit. Oh, it was the men who wanted, you know, us to get all this stuff together. I didn't disobey God's word. It was the men. Oh, come on, Saul, who's king here, right? Yeah. I mean, whose decision was this? He, he, he was trying to pass the buck. He was trying to slide out of it, deny it. It's not my responsibility. David never did that, okay? Even when he got caught red-handed by the prophet of God, he, he was in the wrong bed with Bathsheba and it ended up in, in murder. He arranged for the death of her husband and he'd really blown it big time. And, and the prophet Nathan came to him and told him pretty bluntly what he'd done. His response was, yeah, I sinned. And, you know, if you read Psalm 51 that he wrote on that occasion, create in me a clean heart, O God. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's, he's gutted, yeah? He's acknowledged his, his wrong decision and he's, and he's turned. And that's what separates him and Saul, 
That's what makes David the man after God's own heart and Saul the, the caricature of failure in one sense as king of Israel. And so here you've got David in a hole, big time hole. His decisions, his political tangle have led to his men paying big time with their families, their children, their, their possessions. And he feels that. And he's in a really ugly place right now. Not only has his own family gone, not only has his own house been burned down, and he's feeling so keenly the loss of those, and who wouldn't? He's got the burden of his men's losses on his head as well. And he's feeling, oh, look, I made a decision, and it's cost these guys. These guys trusted me, and I I messed it up. I blew it. You know, they've, they've lost stuff because I decided to go a certain way. And I don't know about it, it, anyone, anyone who's had any leadership responsibilities, who's found themselves making a terrible decision that cost other people, knows what that feels like. That's, <laughs> that's a terrible place to be, yeah. But, you know, there's a few words there at the end of the, I didn't read these words. They're at the end of the last verse I was reading. And uh, I just want to read them now. We go to, it's in verse 6 of chapter 30. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But <laughs> David found strength in the Lord his God. And it's this little but. David found strength in the Lord of his God at the end of the end of the verse that just I think each time I read this it grabs my attention and I, I have to stop at that and and you know I've I've often asked, but what did he do? Come on, God, you're telling us David found strength in the Lord of God, but what's the recipe? How did he <laughs> he's in a hole here, you know? And it, it's all ended. You read the end of the story, by the way. It's a, it's a fantastic ending to the story. David turns it around and he makes a right decision and they go after it. They get all their families back, and none of them have been even seriously hurt, and they get all their possessions back and a whole lot of plunder as well that the Amalekites had taken, they get it back with interest, big time. yeah. And the end of the story is just fantastic and everybody's celebrating at the end of the story. But what, what, oh, you know, I want to know, what, what, what was it? What did he do? What did he do? What, what turned that whole thing around? Where did he, how did he get from a hole to this wonderful ending to this story? But David found strength in the Lord his God. <laughs> it's... Uh, Oh, look, it's one of those things. You know, David has reached a place here where all other avenues of help are gone. Now, you know, I I might list some specific avenues of help. I guess I'm really speaking for myself. Reason is exhausted, yeah? You know, I I like to reason things out. I like to to know why, and I, I, I I want to find out what, what exactly happened here, and that's the way my mind works. So I, I want to know the ins and outs. I want to know how you get from A to B. I want to know, know, and but there are times when reason is exhausted. You, you've reasoned through things, and you've figured out, even if you, with some deep reflection over a long period of time on the Scriptures, you can, you can figure out some deep things of God, but in the end, sometimes reason is exhausted. You just... 
there's no there's just no logical connection anymore and the, and your confidence in yourself can go you know oh i've 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 leaned on i've leaned on my own confidence plenty of times i um, bit of an introvert socially, but I've got a lot of confidence in, in many areas. I, you know, my, my experience, my abilities, my gifts, and I've got a few, and I can rely on those, and I can, uh, I can, I can negotiate myself through a whole lot of situations just using my gifts and my experience and, and my confidence in myself, and I can portray myself if I really want to in a number of different ways that are necessary for any particular context. But sometimes the, your confidence in yourself is ended as well. And you, you're, you're faced with that ugly view in the mirror one day when you look at what you see there and go, well, you're not quite good enough, are you? Yeah. And, you know, David was in this kind of place. He'd made decisions wrong. And there was no reason that he knew he'd been anointed king over Israel. He knew he was destined for the throne of Israel. He, he was, the vast majority of the time, faithful to God. He praised God. We've got Psalms, you know, oh, is it more than half of the, the Psalms we have in, in the Bible have, you know, of David written on them. You know, he's, he's got this wonderful worship life and prayer life and, and he's, man after God's own heart, yeah, the Bible says. And yet, he's blown it this time. He's, he's just gone down the wrong path here and the, everything seems to be falling in on him. You know, he, he, you know that feeling, I don't know, you, you, many of you probably know this feeling, I know this feeling where you get to the place sometimes where you thought you were going the right way and you thought you'd made the right decisions and you thought you were holding up and you get to the place where you think, you get this honest moment where you realise, no, that's a load of garbage, actually. I'm not holding up. I made some wrong decisions. That's a pretty awful place to be. Yeah. There's a lot we could learn, actually, by having a look at some of the things that David wrote in the Psalms. We've got plenty of it, a lot of David's writings. And there's a Psalm that, I think everybody here has surely heard a few words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I have everything I need, depending on which version of the Bible you read. It means the same thing. Yeah. I, I, I always used to, I, once upon a time, I didn't understand that. And, you know, I, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, always used to confuse me. But I do want this shepherd. You know, he's not, it's not what it means. Eh? It means I've got everything. I shall not be in want. Yeah, I, I have everything I need, which some versions say. And it's wonderful. And a lot of people quote this. You know, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul, guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Wonderful words. And there's this beautiful picture of the, the shepherd leading his sheep. And I, I saw this for the first time in Chad in Central Africa. Um, one day I was driving uh, on a back country road, which was rutted dirt track, really, and uh, I saw for the first time in my life a shepherd leading his sheep. You see, as, as an Aussie, she shepherds don't lead their sheep. They get out there in the motorbike and chase them through gates. Yeah, that's what shepherds do. Yeah, 
It's a motorbike out there in the paddock and dogs running around and, and the sheep are chased somewhere. Well, one day in Chad, I saw a shepherd leading his sheep. There was this young fellow. He would have been about 18, 20, I suppose. And he had this staff across his shoulders and just had his hands out like this on the staff. And he's just walking down the road. And there's this line of sheep behind him, nose to tail, nose to tail, nose to tail, nose to tail. And they're just like this. There's trucks going past on this dirt track making all sorts of a racket. There's my, my Hilux ute. You know, I'm going past. These sheep are just... Nose to tail, nose to tail, nose to tail. And this shepherd's just wandering along with his hands on the staff like this. I thought, oh, thank you, God. I just, I just understood something. <laughs> and so, you know, that's what, that's what shepherds did. They led their sheep to the, the good water, to the good grass. You know, they wanted them to, th- to thrive, to flourish. It's fantastic words. Um, sometimes if we read the next stanza of the psalm, the next couple of verses, it's a little bit different. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. (laughs) I'm not sure if I've been in the valley of the shadow of death. I've certainly been in some places that could be the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know if that's what David was thinking here, but I've been in some pretty ugly places where I felt like, well, it's all up now. This is is it. This is finished. Um, One way or the other, whether I was thinking my, my life didn't have much to go or whether I just stuffed it up so badly or things had just gone contrary to my expectations that I was ready to go, nah, that's it, forget it. Yeah. Not a nice place, but you don't want to spend too long there. <laughs> All right. And, uh, you know, I, no, I'm, I'm pretty certain that in this room there's a few people that have been in places like that, bound to be. Yeah. And uh, ugly place to be. But he's, he's saying, though, even though I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, what does he say? I will fear no evil. Whoa. Whoa. What? When you're in that place, it's, it, it's ugly. I'll fear no evil. Hmm. Well, I don't know about you, but when I've been in a place that seems to fit the description of the valley of the shadow of death, uh, there's evil. There's evil everywhere. There's, there's wrong stuff happening. And, I, and I've been, been in a place like that where I'm sure the devil's just having a field day. He's, he's having me for lunch. Yeah, there's plenty of evil. And yet he says here, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me. Ooh. Yeah, you are with me. And I guess that shepherd I saw leading his sheep beside the road in Chad one day, those sheep weren't concerned about the trucks. I didn't see one of them even turn their head in my direction as I went roaring past in my Hilux with its great big sand tires and boom, off I went. And I didn't, none of these sheep even looked at me. Now, I've, I've sometimes I've said some bad words about sheep. Okay. I don't, there have been times over the years when I've looked in the Bible and I see that I'm, I'm likened to a sheep. And that's, I felt like I've been insulted. I don't know if you, you have been around sheep much, but they're pretty stupid animals, really. I mean, oh, frustrating beasts, and especially beside the road when there's no shepherd there, okay? You can be watching the sheep really carefully. It's carefully munching the grass, side of the road, and just as you arrive, it decides it wants to go that way. 
throw out all the anchors, turn the steering wheel, try not to kill the sheep. And that's in moments like those where I've said some unpleasant words about sheep. But these sheep who are following their shepherd didn't even look at my Hilux. I can assure you I was approaching those sheep with caution. I was watching them. I know none of them turned their head because I had my eyes on them. I know what sheep do. Yeah. These sheep couldn't care less about my Hilux. They were just going nose to tail, nose to tail, nose to tail. And there's, and there's, a, whole, there's a whole message in that, yeah? following Jesus. Yeah? <laughs> Not what I want to talk about today, but it's, there's a, sure you know where that can go. Yeah? For you are with me. And uh, these sheep on the side of the road in Chad that day, they didn't, they didn't fear anything at all, I don't think. They were just following the rear end of the sheep in front because they knew the sheep in front was following the rear end of the sheep in front of him. And he knew that that sheep was following the rear end of the sheep in front of him and, and up, so on up the line. And they know that, knew that the first sheep was following the rear end of the shepherd. Right? And they knew in their sheepy kind of logic that if they all just followed the rear end of the sheep in front, nobody would get hurt. Beautiful picture, isn't it? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because I've got my nose on the rear end of the sheep in front. Don't, don't go too far with that. <laughs> in the next stanza, the, the psalm, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <laughs> We've gone somewhere here from the valley of the shadow of death to the house of the Lord forever. Oh, whoa, now these places seem to me to be quite a long way apart, yeah? But we've just gone there, just, just like that, yeah? Or maybe it's not just like that, but somehow we've gone there. We've gone from the valley of the shadow of death to preparing a table in the presence of my enemies. Have you ever sat there and thought about that verse, those words, preparing a table in the presence of my enemies? I sat there and thought about it and thought, gee, you know, there are some people over the years that have given me a really hard time. I would just love them to sit there and watch God set me up, yeah, and, and to justify me and to tell everybody that this, this guy is, is, is my child and, and I love him and I want him in my kingdom. There's just a few people in the world I would just love to be present when God says that. And you know, I look forward, look forward to a day when, when God says, well done, good and faithful servant. And there have been times where I've wanted, there's some people, I want to be there when God says that, you know. But this is, this, you set a table in the presence of my enemies. It's not just a pat on the back and, you know, every, they're there, everything's all right now. This is, this is vindication, yeah? You... You're, you're, in, you're in my kingdom and I love you so much and this is what I'm giving you and everybody's going to see it. Oh, that's a bit far from the valley of the shadow of death, isn't it? Hmm. I guess this, this particular moment when David and his men got back to Ziklag and found it burned down 
might have been one of those moments where, where David felt like he was walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He actually probably did fear literally for his life. And his men were talking about stoning him. And uh, emotionally and, and, and mentally, he would have been also in that place of, of hardship. Uh, if anyone had a, had, a, had a reason for depression to take a hold, well, David was in that kind of place at that, that moment. Yeah. Everything had just gone wrong. His decisions had ended not only himself, but his family, his men, his men's families in a very, very nasty place. I could, I could give a lot of different examples. There's, there's just one more I want to quickly have a look at. At the end of, end of 2 Samuel, there's, there's an interesting uh, part of David's life there where David, again, has, he's, he's blown it. He's made a bad decision. He goes and issues this census of Israel and the whole, he was told not to by the prophet. The prophet said, don't do that. Look, we in Israel, we depend on God's strength. Don't. You know, and the prophet said pretty plainly to the king, look, I think you're counting the people of Israel because you want to be proud in the numbers and strength of Israel. Yeah, and that's not what it's about, uh, your majesty. I, I don't think you really should carry out this census because I, I think that you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Now, I paraphrased what the prophet said a bit, but David went on and did it anyway. He wanted to know how big and powerful Israel was and Oh, God had a few words to say about that, and David was given a choice. You know, you can, there can be three years of famine, um, or you can spend three months running from your enemies, or a plague for three days. David's response is interesting. He says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord rather than the hands of men. Now, he didn't directly answer the question, I guess. But that answer is interesting. This is near, well, you know, I, I think, you know, from the way it's at the end of 2 Samuel, yeah, <laughs> it's near the, it's late in David's reign, okay? And uh, he's, he's been around for a while, he's been king for quite a while, and he's made another mistake. And again, like he always has, he acknowledges it, doesn't try to pass the buck, doesn't try to deny it, he acknowledges it, I, I made a mistake. But his answer is, if there's going to be a consequence of this, if there's going to be a punishment, if there's going to be something that happens because I made a mistake, then let us be in the hands of God rather than in the hands of men. You know, it could have been a, a little bit to do with you know, running from his enemies. He might have considered that being placed in the hands of his enemies, the hands of men perhaps. But I don't know, even then David's ran from enemies a fair bit in his life and we see from what he wrote that he considered himself in the hands of God. Yeah, and that his protection from his enemies came from God. And so his answer is very, very interesting. He doesn't actually answer the question. He just says, let me be in the hands of God rather than in the hands of men. And that is a number of times when I've read that. I, I've just been struck by that because many people have this view of God, where especially when they've really blown it, they've made a mistake, they're waiting for the lightning bolt. Yeah, And they, they have this conception that that god is is watching for mistakes and when he sees ones there's a you know lightning bolts from the fingers and, and all that stuff yeah metaphorically speaking and so david 
is in a place where if anyone's going to cop a lightning bolt from, from the heavens, yeah, David might consider himself a bit of a candidate here. And yet he says, let me be in the hands of the Lord. What? Why do you think he says that? Why do you think he says, well, let, let God deal with me. Let God, let God handle this. I don't want to be in the hands of men. I want to be in the hand of God. Even though one might think that God's going to hand out judgment here and David is going to cop it. Why does he say that? Well, let me put it to you that he says that because he knows the Lord his God. He knows who his, who his God is. He knows, as, as he says in this verse in uh, 2 Samuel 24, I think it's verse 14, he says, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. And it's at this moment he, he remembers that God's mercy is great. And how does, he, how does he know that God's mercy is great? That's because he knows the Lord is God. Let me put it to you that he actually has a living, breathing relationship with the Lord his God. And you read some of the Psalms that David has written and you get this, you really do get this feeling that David and God, they knew each other. Yeah? I mean, we, we, David says, well, it wasn't, actually wasn't David, but there's a, there's a psalm that says, you know, he knit me together in, in my mother's womb. God's intimate knowledge of us, but not only that, David knew God. He'd, spent a, he'd had a life of worshipping God. He'd had a life of prayer. He'd had a life of seeking after God and listening to him, listening to his voice. He knew God. He knew that if he placed himself in God's hands, yeah, there may be a really tough moment coming up. Quite a few tough moments, maybe. As it turns out, there was a plague for three days and 70,000 people in Israel died. Coronavirus, eat your heart out. Right. Uh, not moving anything like that. Okay, this was big time. 70,000 in three days. Woo. Serious stuff. And, but in that, there came a moment where God said, enough, enough. Far enough. Stop there. And as it says there, he told the angel who had his hand out over Jerusalem, which, which I guess is the writer's way of saying that there was some serious stuff um, descending on Jerusalem there and it was, it was related to the, the plague. And God said, enough, enough now. There was a limit to it. And God says, okay, we're done now. Let's stop that. But David did that because he knew the Lord his God. He understood that God would be merciful. If David hadn't known that, what would he have done? Where would he have gone? In, when he came back to Ziklag, if, if David had not known God, what would he have done? Would he have got stoned, maybe? Maybe. Even if he hadn't got stoned, would he have, would he have entered a... A few years of, of depression, maybe. But you see, that didn't happen because he knew the Lord his God and he was able to find strength in that. You know, in our, in our Western cultures, we sometimes don't like the, the phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Sometimes we say it because we recognise the truth of it. But we don't like it. There's phrases like, jobs for the boys. Yeah? 
It's a negative phrase. That's, it's, it's, that's, that's a criticism of people who you know, just employ people that they know and leave others who might be perhaps better qualified out. Yeah? And in our culture, that's a negative thing. But I have to tell you, most of the world actually doesn't think this way. Most of the world knows that relationship is really important. And uh, you want to you work in Africa? You want to get the task done? I have to tell you that you need to build some relationships first or you'll be banging your head up against a brick wall most of the day. Take some time, build some relationships, and then worry about the task. It's kind of, we in the Western culture, we kind of have it the other way around. We like to focus on the task and build relationships along the way. Uh, it's not the way it happens in Africa, I'm sorry. But it seems to me that our salvation works the same way. That's not what you know, it's who you know. I mean, I, I know a lot. Actually, the Apostle Paul knew a lot too. You know, he could have, could have quoted probably because you know, he studied under Gamaliel for, for decades, he was a Pharisee, probably could have quoted chapter after chapter after chapter of taught R to you. Okay, certainly he could teach, and as we see in the New Testament, as he does it many times, teach expertly on the law of the Lord and on prophets. But even Paul is saying that, you know, I beat my body, he says, and I, I, I strive to, I strive because I don't want, after having preached to others, to be disqualified myself. And so he knew that just knowing wasn't going to get him into the kingdom of God. He knew that it was, it was more than that. He said, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And David was able to find strength in the Lord his God at Ziklag because of who he knew, not because of what he knew. There's uh, <laughs> the word often used in the Old Testament that's just translated salvation. Sometimes it's translated help, deliverance. It's a very um, holistic concept. And the word is Yeshua. Yeshua or whatever. It's, it's actually, it's on that flag, isn't it? Yeah, that, that word, Yeshua, Yeshua, is the Hebrew word often translated salvation or, or deliverance or help in, in the Old Testament. And uh, that, that word sort of comes through into, into Greek and it's used as a name, Yesus which comes into English as, as Jesus. Or in other languages, Yesu or Isa or in various parts of the world. It's not an accident that Jesus had a name that was very, very similar indeed to the Hebrew word for, for salvation. And uh, Again, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Our salvation came in the, in the form of a person, a person that we need to know person that we need to have a relationship with it's it's not about learning stuff and passing an exam it's about who you know and David when he came back to Ziklag was able to find strength in the Lord of God his God because of who he knew and he wrote Psalm 23 he acknowledged that even though he walked through the valley of the shadow of death he would have no evil he would fear no evil because of what he knew? No, because of who he knew. 
because you are with me, he said of God. And when he made this mistake about the the census in Israel, he was able to say, let me fall rather into the Lord's hands than into the hands of men. Why? Because of who he knew. And life life generally is full of stuff where sometimes we just need strength, (coughs) where the normal things we lean on are not there or they've proven to be inadequate. We get to the point where we just say, this is not working, this is not working. Uh, Look, I've, I've seen over the last week or two on, on social media, I've seen so much fear out there over what coronavirus might do to us and to our economies and, and to the world generally. And it may well be an ugly time that we have coming. But there's so much fear. And what, I, mean, I ask myself, why are people so afraid? Why are they afraid? It's because what they depend on is proving inadequate. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be. When you depend on something, you depend on it, you depend on it, you depend on it, and then you find that it's letting you down, you fall over, or it's not enough. The wave is still above your head, even though you're leaning on it. I've had the privilege over the last couple of years of, of developing a, a training course for prospective missionaries who are joining ACC International. And I've, in the process, interviewed a number of, of missionaries and there's one lady by the name, Sarah's her name, she works uh, in Southeast Asia. And uh, she's talking about the way they present the gospel in the area in which she works. And they use storytelling a lot because it's a totally oral culture. Um, and even the people who can read and write still think orally. Right? It's, it's not a, not a, a, a culture that based on literature at all and, and stories are, are very held in very high esteem. So they use storytelling a lot. But there's a phrase that they use in, in the churches that she has, she has planted. And the phrase is depending on Jesus. And that's what the believers in those churches that she's planted, what they ask each other on a Sunday when, they, when they're standing, sitting, talking to each other, um, they say, how are you going depending on Jesus this week? How's this, how are you going depending on Jesus? And I think in capturing, in coming up with that phrase, depending on Jesus, I think she's captured something very important. Yeah. David found strength in the Lord his God. Who was David depending on? And I want, I want to say to you, and this applies to any time in life, any difficult period, and God knows we have a few of those. If you don't have a few of those, I want to know what your secret is because I've been through a few of those. (laughs) We have to be depending on Jesus because if we're depending on other things, it's not going to be enough. And there's so much fear out there this week about what coronavirus might do because people are not depending on Jesus. They're depending on other things and the other things are They've seen it. They've looked at these things and they said, this is not going to work. I depend on my job. I depend on my family. I I depend on the government. I I depend on confidence in the economy. Well, they've looked at it this week and gone, well, that ain't going to work. I could still die. We need to depend on Jesus. But you see, in order to depend on Jesus, we need to know him. We need, to, we need to know this man. And if, 
if you want to depend on Jesus, you need to, need to, you need to understand that you can depend on him, but you need to, need to know him because how can, you, how can you have confidence depending on someone if you don't even know who they are or, or what kind of person they are or, or whether they can save you or not? You see this concept of salvation we see in the Old Testament. It's, it's not just about getting our souls to heaven. It's, it's a whole lot of things yeah, in life. Um, deliverance and help and, and saving through all kinds of avenues of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you so much that I've been able to depend on you uh, in so many so many different situations in life over years. I've been able to depend on you and I've found that you are, you are able and you are worthy to be depended on. You haven't let me down, Lord Jesus. I, I can testify to that. Thank you, Jesus. Look, while we're, while we're in an attitude of prayer, if there's anyone um, here who said you don't, you don't know Jesus well enough to do this, you, you don't think you can depend on Jesus because you don't know what that means or you don't think you can depend on him, then could you stick your hand up quickly so that I can see it? Because I want to pray for you if that's the, the case. And uh, maybe we can talk later. What I also, what I also want uh, is if you've been listening to what I've said this morning and you can remember depending on Jesus remember um, working hard at, at maintaining a relationship with him but you've been thinking well it's been a while since that was like that I want to I want to pray for you as well Look, there's this this relationship we have with, with Jesus is just so it's unique you can depend on him like you can't depend on any other person and when, you know, Pete, you can depend on someone like David was a wonderful man. But his men depended on him and he led them through some pretty ugly places. He made some mistakes that cost them. Well, Jesus won't let you down. He will not let you down in, in any situation. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there he is. And you can depend on him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray that uh, my brothers and sisters here this morning will be uh, enthused, that they'll be motivated to uh, depend on you, to find in a, in a wonderful new way how, how strong and powerful you are, how supportive you are, how dependable 